Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talkhouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a slightly more focused conversation than we often do as Matthew Hauk, the driving force behind the band Phosphorescent, chats with legendary songwriter Nick Lowe, largely about Lowe's recently reissued 2001 album, The Convincer. Now, even if Nick Lowe's name isn't super familiar to you, some of his songs almost certainly are. He's had an incredible career that stretches back to the late 1960s, with his biggest mainstream moment coming via his dear friend Elvis Costello, who covered Lowe's What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding and made it a hit. Lowe also produced Costello's first five albums, as well as a bunch of other classic British records, in addition to his solo work and his time with the band Rockpile. Now, like I said, today's conversation is focused largely on The Convincer, which was something of an artistic rebirth for Nick Lowe. He wanted to age gracefully and continue to challenge himself, which he did with this trilogy of albums ending with this one. It's a beautifully written and performed set of songs that didn't set the commercial world on fire, but which has quietly found its way into many people's hearts over the past two decades. Check out a little bit of that album's I'm a Mess. I should be filling rooms With the sweet smell of success I'm a mess Look at what I've been reduced to Now that song, I'm a Mess, is the reason for this conversation. Hauk, who has been making incredible music of his own under the name Phosphorescent since the early aughts, is an obsessive fan of The Convincer, so much that he's been working on a cover of I'm a Mess. A mutual friend of Hauk and Lowe's sent Lowe a copy of the song, which isn't available yet, and they chat about it here. Now the most recent Phosphorescent release is called the BBC Sessions EP, and it strips a set of Hauk songs down to their barest essentials. Much of his studio material is far more gussied up, and this is a great chance to hear them kind of naked. Check out a little bit of Song for Zula. Some say love is a burning thing That it makes a fiery ring Oh, but I know love as a fading thing Just as fickle as a feather in a stream as you'll hear in this conversation, Hauk is a huge fan of Lowe's, and specifically of The Convincer. They get into specifics about a bunch of the songs, and we'll play you snippets throughout, and we'll find out if Lowe agrees that this was indeed his finest recorded hour. You'll also hear about how the Bodyguard soundtrack changed Lowe's fortunes forever, how his one-time girlfriend Margot Kidder made her way into a song, and how Wilco helped him win fans in Indianapolis. Enjoy. It's really uh, great to talk to you. You too, and thanks so much for doing my tune. Oh yeah, it's uh, kind of coincidental how all this worked out. I, I had already been messing with that long before I, I knew I was gonna gonna speak to you, and I happened to talk to uh, Matt Hanks about. We just kind of ended up organically talking about the convincer and discovered that we were both, uh, you know, major fans of it. There's like a few ways you can go about covers, right? You know, you can like do them like they're yours, you know, and not pay all that much attention to the the original, you know. And I guess in my mind, I thought maybe I would 
just kind of tackled that song, but it was quickly apparent that there was nothing to do but follow yours, like follow it closely. Because I think it's a tough one. There's something about the way the song is. It's quite sort of desperate. I think it's a very bold move that you did it because it's not for everyone really that that tune, you know. I think it's a great song, but I'd forgotten all about it till uh, <laughs> Matt sent me your version. I've got this little run of shows coming up in London. And I thought, oh, I'm a mess. I wonder if I can still remember how to do that. And I, oh. I, I got it out and I thought, yeah, this could fly. So I'm going oh, nice. to do it on these, on these shows, thanks to your digging it out for <laughs> me. <laughs> I love that song, first of all. I always, I think, tend to like, I guess, the, you know, bleaker, weirder songs on records, you know, kind of consistently. But that one, it feels very much like a straightforward song until I was trying to play it. And it might be the weirdest song I've ever learned in the sense that it doesn't ever do what songs do, which is repeat itself ever. It does The chord progression never does the same thing twice. I felt like there was a verse and a chorus and a very, but there's not. It's an amazing trick. Not that I'm comparing myself to the great man, you know, but I remember someone pointing out on some documentary I was, what I was watching about Roy Orbison's songs that he never does that. He's, he they just he starts off and he goes from one sort of hook to another to another, right. to another, ends on a high note, you know, and everyone's very happy. The same thing happened to me when uh, when I started playing it again. I thought, oh wait a minute, I remember when I was on that sort of Roy Orbison thing. I'll never do it, do the same thing twice. But I can also remember that when I got to the end of it, the sort of the um, natural end of the song, it seemed like it was too short. That needed something else, another bit in it. But every time I tried to do another verse or something, it seemed to spoil it somehow. It, it, sure. it seemed to, because of the nature of the song, somebody at the end of their tether. Right, they're not going to go on. They're not going to go on about it. Yes, <laughs> right, yes. No, right. Please, please, no, don't make me do it. You know. Right, right. It's a good little piece, and thanks very much for uh, drawing my attention ah, to it. Thank you. It's, yeah, I, I really, it's a perfect little song. I'm just going to sit here and gush at you the whole time, but I'm wondering about your, your writing process. It's so concise, or at least this record is, and it seems like it's put together so perfectly. I wonder how much pre-thought was that, or if it kind of just organically happened, or were you crafting like crazy on these things? It's hard to remember exactly now, but I and the little sort of coterie of musicians that I started working with had done two records before The Convincer. And it all came about because I realised that the public were kind of tired of my shtick, and I was too. And my personal life and career and everything was really in the dumper, really, at the time. I was in, in, in bad way, all the, all the classic things, drinking too much and, you know, and just tired of the sound of my own voice and everything. And I uh, realised I had to do something different. And what I came up with after I'd sort of, the mists that began to clear after a few months, you know, and I started to enter the real world again, I took stock of what I'd managed to achieve, you know, and, and thought, well, you've done pretty well. You know, you've, you've, you've had a couple of hits yourself, you know, that's handy, you know. <laughs> While I was a record producer, I'd managed to do some pretty good records with people along the way. Quite a lot of bad ones too, but that's the way that goes. But I'd done pretty well, you know, but I felt that I hadn't really done anything at the same time. I hadn't done anything really, really juicy. You know, I'd been 
a sort of pop star, you know, and they're kind of four a penny, you know. But I thought, well, what do you do now? I was I was heading towards 40 when at that time in the 1980s, there wasn't any such thing as people in pop in their 40s. In jazz, yes. In country and western, yes, even back in those days. Unless you were Tony Bennett or Frank Sinatra, who were sort of curios really at that time. Sure. But I thought I'm going to figure out a way of re- presenting myself to so I can actually take advantage of the fact that I'm getting older in a business that doesn't value getting yeah. older you know sure. I didn't know it that then as much as I know it now but when you look in the mirror you know and you think who the hell is this old bastard and where did he come from because you feel it's a cliche I know but you feel still feel young at heart you know mm-hmm. and um so and I thought, well, I want to do records which uh, are, are young at heart, but I've got all this experience and you know I've been around and everything, you know. So how how can I do that? You know, make records that still sound funky, you know, and fun and slightly out of not for everybody, as I knew everybody wouldn't go for it. It wasn't like a plan for the market, you know, so much as I, if that came along, I'd be thrilled, you know, sure. I, I wasn't banking on that. And I thought that if I get it right, I, young people will dig it. You know, it won't, I won't just be preaching to the old, uh, God bless them, you know, my, my old audience who yeah. were starting to think that I, I, I rocketh not anymore, <laughs> you know, as I was getting, as I was getting older, you yeah. know, I, I was going off all that, you know. I thought I'd done it. It's real good fun and everything, but the sort of rock and roll I like was something a bit more sort of creepy somehow, you know, and doesn't involve loads of volume as it yeah. once did. I was setting my sights reasonable level, but I thought it could work. Did it work? Yeah. I mean, were, were they successful records compared to what you'd had in the past? They were really, yes, because the the other thing was that I thought I need to be on a small label, you know, that again at that time it was, oh my God, you know, you've you've run out of big labels, you know, you, yeah. you you've been on them all and they've rejected <laughs> you, you know. The only uh-huh. thing, my God, you're gonna have to go on a small independent, you know. Um, but I I thought this would be a great idea. This will this will really I need to be on a small independent label. So I'm a big fish in a, in a small pool. Right. You know, that's an essential part of it, actually. And then, so that was that. I was taking care of, of all these things one by one. The other thing was that Elvis Costello had encouraged me to start doing solo shows because he, he'd recently started doing that. And he said, oh, it's, a, it's absolutely fantastic, you know, if you... And I, I said, oh, I don't think I can do that, EC. You know, there's a, you're, you're made of different stuff from me. You know, you don't mind going out and banging away on fr- in front of thousands of people. Anyway, he, he took me into having a go because he took me on tour with him. This was really a new thing. You had not done that prior. No, I'd never, I'd never done oh, it before, wow. you know. And um, so he shoved me out to do a few tunes before the show. He had me in his group. He had mm-hmm. his fantastic group with Jim Keltner and James Burton and these these people. And, uh, and, and it was a sort of world tour he took me on. And I was... What year is uh, this? What are we talking about? I this would think like... it was about 84 or something like oh, that. okay. And 83 or 84, when I was just... I had the first stirrings of this in my in my mind, you know. He took me off with him because I was 
I had nothing else to do. You know, it was really nice of him, actually. You know, and I just played a bit of rhythm guitar and sang some harmonies and, and things. But he shoved me out one night uh, to do a few of these songs. And I found, A, that people seemed to like it. That was astonishing to me. that people reacted so well to this. Mm-hmm. But also how appalled I was about how badly arranged some of these songs were. I'd been making records before. You know, I hadn't I hadn't seen the importance of having this song absolutely watertight. Because I'd stand up there and I'd sing some bit, you know, I thought, God, I can remember sticking this in, you know, because I thought it needed another little thing. This is really useless, this bit. Why on earth? And not only that, here it comes again. You know, so I really sat down and, and thought, well, you've got to start writing songs that are going to stand up under any circs. You So yeah. you can play them fast, play them slow, change the key, change the tense, you know, the, the anything. And um, so I went to work trying to get songs that did that with a view to recording them as if I was making a jazz record or something like that. That's what I wanted to to do. Mm-hmm. So there was a place not far from where I live. It's a like a dance hall attached to a pub. Okay. But it's got a fantastic acoustic in it. It's got a mm-hmm. sort of vaulted roof, you know, roof like that, and an old-fashioned dance floor. So I'd hire it for in the afternoon. So I'd go over there and after lunch, and I'd stay in all day. I wouldn't, I'd take a guitar, but not an amp or a mic or anything like that. And I'd just start playing in this room and it sounded so great in there that oh, wow. you sing sing out in, yeah. you know and I started to write these pretty good tunes in there so we had the idea of renting this place and setting the gear up in to there to record in there mm-hmm. to record in there yeah and uh, which we did but what we hadn't recognized that it was a lot of people had similar ideas like the uh, like the boy scouts you know the keep fit club the photography club. You know? Oh, no. And so uh-huh. every every night we had to strip it a whole lot down and then set it all up the next uh, the next right. day. And uh, that, you know, that <laughs> put a little hitch in things. That'll put a damper on it, yeah. And so in the end, I thought I'd save on expenses, you know, but in the end it cost about the same as sort of bridge over trouble waters <laughs> or something, you know, to make this record, you know, because we were, it, it just took us so long to do it. That was Impossible Bird. That was Impossible uh-huh. Bird. So we, so the second Dig My Mood, we went into a studio and that one came out pretty well, but we thought we knew, right, one more, this is going to be a trilogy, one more heave, you know, and we're through. Okay, so the first two were kind of like, trial you know getting to the because okay i wonder if you feel this way do you feel that like convincer in your repertoire is as special of a record as as i think it is maybe your other records are, are great but i think this is like a towering uh thing it's such a special record it's probably is my best record i think okay. it probably is my best record but again as you know you know you don't hear things the way other people do you know you can hear just the flaws, you know, and just the things that are wrong, you know, um, until until time's gone by. And then sometimes you can hear something come on the radio or you yep. run across it after a few years. And you think, My God, I yeah, thought who did this that? was a bit, yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> yeah. not bad, you know. 
but there are certainly other tracks on the, on the other records that I love. But I think overall, The Convincer was the nearest thing to the original spirit. Because we went on to make two more after that. We said, trilogy, you know, <laughs> that's for losers, you know. So um, we went on and do, did another couple because we just started enjoying it so much, enjoying hanging out with each other. And, mm-hmm. and, and even though voices were saying to me, don't you think you better, you know, hook up with some Peruvian flutists now? You know, aren't you doing this, you know, do something a bit different? And it never got round to it. But, um, yes, the convincer was, I think, is, is my overall favourite. But anyway, Greg Geller, who was a lovely man who I'm still proud to, to call a friend, who was the man who signed me and Elvis to... Columbia Records, lovely sort of old school A&R guy, you know. Mm-hmm. He recommended Upstart as just somebody we should send the record to. And um, they were attached to uh, Rounder. So we sent the record to them and they thought it was great. And, uh, you know, I'm with, still with them now. So the, the record, that one comes out and y'all, I guess, tour a little bit or, in, or a, a lot. Yes. An extraordinary thing happened. One of my songs got put in this movie, which was a massive, massive hit. It was The Bodyguard. Uh-huh. And my, my uh, Peace, Love and Understanding song. Uh-huh. Now, I've never actually seen The Bodyguard, I but either. I think <laughs> I've had quite a lot of goes at watching it, you know, and I've never managed to get through it all the way. But but nonetheless, I understand from people who have seen it that it plays on a radio or something, a car radio in the background, you know. But anyway, it got put on the soundtrack. And so from being pretty much broke, suddenly I started to get a, a, a number of large checks. Wait, did you get like a dollar off of every album that was sold in that or something? It was much less than that, but there were so, so many, many. <laughs> millions and millions of copies. So suddenly I was a wealthy individual and able to tour The Impossible Bird in the United States where my primary fan base was due to rock pile and you know the, all the they're in the 70s so you went with the band that was on the record right okay yes and suddenly i started getting some good reviews and uh, you know people started getting it it's like starting over sort of in a weird way right with <laughs> luckily you have this huge cushion of having a song on a what the biggest selling record of all time maybe <laughs> yeah i guess so yeah <laughs> was it your version that's on there no, uh, Curtis Steigers did it. The, the whole story is quite remarkable. Curtis and I have been, because of it, we've been friends um, ever since. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as you can probably That'll imagine. Do it. That'll do it, yeah. <laughs> That'll do it. Um, I mean, it was a lot of money. It's amazing, actually, how quickly it goes. You know, it, it enabled me to fund a tour of the United States, fund, mm-hmm. pay my recording expenses for Impossible Work, and pay for, um, to make the second one, to make, uh, Mm -hmm. dig my mood. And, uh, you know, I bought a couple of suits, took a few people out to dinner, (laughs) you know, (laughs) wasted a bit. Yeah, you got to. It sort of went, you know, it went, but it demonstrated that I was sort of back in the marketplace again. Otherwise this wouldn't have happened. Yeah. It really put me on the road to recovery (laughs) again. I mean, that's, uh, Yeah, I'm looking forward to one of those happening. (laughs) 
Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of the Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. They also make it easy to upload lyrics and metadata, and to track your earnings, and share them with your bandmates and co-writers. You can even snap on extras like Instant Share, which allows for easy collaboration. The DistroKid app makes it all a seamless experience that will save you a ton of time, that would be better spent making music. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Head over to the App Store to download it. All bands and artists have jobs, right? Jobs they do like, others they don't. Times they're fucked up and they've had to face the boss with rosy cheeks and the tails between their legs. 101 Part-Time Jobs is the podcast where we hear those stories. I've had some killer guests on, like The Chisel, Chastity Belt, Real Estate, Kurt Vile, Mannequin Pussy, and so many more. If you subscribe to 101 Part-Time Jobs podcast, you'll be getting two episodes weekly. That's a promise. See you soon. So this brings us to where you're at when, when it's time to, to make the convincer. By the time the convincer came on, we were all, our tails were up. We could see that it was, we were reaching a new audience as well. A lot of my old fans dropped away because they couldn't hear the rock and roll in it, you know, enough, you know. They were getting older too, right? I mean, they, didn't they want to mellow out? I know, yes. Yeah, so but, but it's funny, they, they don't, they sort of want to relive their youth. They can't stand, you know, the, oh, the, right. their own, a mirror being turned on them, you know. They want to relive their youth. And a lot of my contemporaries are happy to supply that, you know. To me, that would be like a living death. You're among the... Uh... The guys that did it right, I, you know, I mean, I really, uh, I really think that's true. There was a bit of judgment, but it was a lot of luck involved in it. Mm. And I don't think it's that drastically different from what I've always done, but just, just presented with a little more care taken to certain things that not much care was taken of before. Right. It's very uh, stately, charming, mature, elegant. It's a very grown up record. I feel like it leans into it. But it's also, you know, subject-wise and stuff, it still feels pretty harrowing. You know, there's a lot of <laughs> stuff going on. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I I was, you know, in the midst, well, the things that everybody runs into, you know, you know, having a heart broken, you know, something I think you have to put up with, you know, yeah. once or twice in, <clears throat> sure. in life, you know, and, I, and I, I'd just been through one of those scenes. But I was very anxious to try and avoid putting my diary to music. You know, uh -huh. I didn't want to make it autobiographical. I know what it feels like, you know, to be misused or to misuse people. You know, I know what it's like to be lied to or indeed to lie to others. That stuff that comes along with being on the planet for a few years. But I was very anxious to not make it too autobiographical, but to make the songs more universal if I could, but make them soulful, you know, to actually really make something that sounds like the guy means it yeah. without insulting anyone's attention because I'm a, you know, white middle-class English 
guy, you know, so I don't want to kid anybody, you know, that, that uh, and I love American music as well. I love American music, but I love what happens to it when it comes over here and the unique position that us Brits are in who love American music to be able to sort of have this view America is this sort of giant smorgasbord of fabulous music. You know, we can pick a little bit from there and take a little bit from there, shove yeah. it together with something. So I love American music, but I, but I love what happens to it when it comes over here. One of my buddies, when I told him that we were going to be talking, he's like, well, you're going to have to ask him about the, the, all that trouble in Yellowknife. And uh, <laughs> he, must, he, must say, <laughs> he sounds like he had a rough time over there. we got to talk about that. <laughs> I love that song. I uh, Indian Queens is so, so good. But yeah, that's, uh, it's weird. I mean, I'd be amazed if it was autobiographical, but, <laughs> yeah. but it's such a, uh, what a song that is. This record does all these like sneaky things. I think that like, I do think of it as a very personal record, but it's clearly not, as you say, you know, your, your diary, but whatever thrust you were going, a thrust comes through, you know, and that song in particular. And yeah, lately I've let things slide. That one sounds like it could have been maybe a bit close to home. With a growing sense of dread And a hammer in my head Fully clothed upon the bed I wake up to the world That lately I've been living in Can I ask you more questions about, like, the sessions? I guess you're saying you guys tracked them live, which is surprising to me, I think, because when I get a group of people together and we try to do things live, it very often, it starts to rock, for lack of a better, you know, it, you just kind of naturally want to vibe that way, especially if there's drums. And this record feels like all the ingredients were there, but either somebody was masterful in pulling the faders down during mixing and just erasing stuff, or it was like, it feels to me like it was overdubbed a piece at a time to kind of put this perfect thing together where, like you were saying about bringing in extra players, like I can't imagine having a day and saying like, like on I'm a Mess, for example, when I was uh, kind of studying that song and recording it a couple weeks ago. Like, so there's a horn section that comes in and plays, you know, two long notes and they're gone. So certainly you didn't say we need to call in the horn section today to record two notes and then get them out. I played it after I heard your your version of it. I played it and I was surprised. <laughs> that. No, I, I think we did. We did. We, but they came in to do something else. And we said, well, can you... Uh, you know, Just do a couple drony notes right there. I think they probably played a bit more on it than that. But Neil Brockbank was the guy who could do that fabulous mixing thing where he just sort of, it would just sound organic, you know, and it would still sound sort of live-ish and funky, you know, but that was that was the idea, you know, to, to get the, the basic track down and get that sort of edited right. And then we overdub to our heart's content. So kind of arranging it on the spot then. You it, you didn't go in with these arrangements really dialed in like that beforehand. We did. Me, me Neil and Bob would have these these meetings. I've got another another small house, you know, little place I can stay up late and write and all that rest of it, you know. Um, but back in the in those days, we used to have these sort of like quite boozy dinners. There we go. And I, and I'd knock up a bit of pasta or something like that, and we'd all you know get some good wine in, and uh, we'd sit around and we'd listen to records, including our own. We'd be very very critical, you know, be extremely critical. And also, when we'd call one of these meetings, I would play them whatever new songs I had. 
any bits and pieces, you know, that I couldn't get on with if, if to, to see whether they thought they were worth pers- persevering with. They'd be very, very frank. We used to talk about the bloke. The bloke is the guy who makes the records and not me sitting there, you know, um, playing the song to them. Got it. So there's yeah. nothing, yeah. didn't take it personal. They'd say, well, the bloke wouldn't say that, you know. The, yeah. That yeah. doesn't, the, the bloke, it doesn't sound right, the bloke saying that, you know. It's not, oh, so this is writing sort of at, like thinking about the. Yeah. I, oh, I'd, okay. present, I'd present a song to them and mm-hmm. they would, and they would critique it. I mean, sometimes they'd say, oh, that's a cracker. Yeah, that's uh-huh. a cracker. I can hear how that could go. Yeah. But very often, I, and I would welcome it. I'd say, look, I've painted myself into a corner here, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just such a good bridge, you know, but getting out of it, where am I going to go? And then they say, well, why don't you take the, see that that line there that you did that sounds a bit throwaway, stick that back in and start with that. So I'd, I'd do that. I can't remember if we'd actually rehearse. I'd certainly send a, a, an acoustic guitar demo out to the other, the other musician, the bass player, Geraint Watkins, who played keyboards and uh, who was also a very important part of it. That organ is astonishing all over that record, yeah. Is that a real organ? Is that a Hammond? Or is that like a keyboard? Both, really. Okay. He had a, a really good sort of Hammond act, yeah. He, he could get a really fantastic old-fashioned, you know, non-Leslie, non or stock Leslie, stock Leslie sound, you know, which, which I love. And also uh, uh, and that kind of farfeasery sound, you know, which I, I love that sound. Anyway, that's really how we, we churn this stuff over and uh, maybe have a rehearsal, maybe go to the little dance hall place where we record. And bring all the gear over there and all that. Yeah. We were rehearsing stuff up in that little room on 9-11 when ah. one of our roadies came and said, you won't believe what's going on. So that was, you guys were actually preparing to tour. That was the day the record came out, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So that obviously got canceled or did it, did it happen anyways? Was that in the States where you supposed to come? Yeah, no, it was delayed. Right. Yeah. Certainly delayed. You guys really did something special. That's like, it sounds, it sounds huge, but also it's so like refined. Like everything is so well-placed that I guess that's why I keep kind of going back to like wondering how the arrangements happened is because like, it just seems like so many amazing decisions must have happened. Were we all just like on a vibe that was like, it just happened or was it constantly thinking about like, well, don't go too crazy on this solo. We did really talk about it quite it's very hard because you don't want to squash the vibe out, you know, by by talking about it and talk, no one wants to do it anymore. It's exactly, yeah, yeah. It's like trying to catch something in a bottle, you know, lightning in a bottle, whatever the, whatever the expression is. Yeah, find that middle ground, yeah. Yeah, and then do it until it goes away, you know, which could be, what, three, four takes maybe you might have, and that will be your thing. Do you remember how long of a process it was from, like, starting recording to going to mastering? It could be quite a long time because it, because I never had a whole bunch of songs, you know, all ready to go. Oh, you would kind of get them as they came in and just call everybody? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that took a bit of time. But the actual recording, once we, you know, knew what we had to do, it didn't really take that long. Neil would work hard on, on mixing it, but it was never head in hands, you know, oh, God, I was mixing till five this morning, I can't be, you know. It, it, it yeah. never seemed to be like that. But we tried to make his, his, his job as easy as possible by working the mix into the music, if you know what there I mean. There you go. You know, making yeah, making yeah. decisions early on, as you right there, as mm-hmm. you pointed out, mixing down things. The drums would generally be mixed onto 
two tracks pretty quickly, you know. All right. And just commit. Yeah. 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 When you guys were finished, did you feel that you had really done something or do you always feel that way after records or like, did it feel more special than others? I remember when Neil said, I've got this thing I've worked out because I had this sort of idea about this song, a home record, which starts the record off. You look like you could be taken for family. That's your style. I said, I think this could be really great, really creepy, you know, fantastic, but I don't quite know how to do it. And we used Pete Townsend studio, actually. Pete Townsend had a studio not far from here. It was a bit fancy for us, you know. It took us a bit of time to get it to feel right in there, you know, and, and get the sound going. And by the time we got round to this home record, we couldn't make out how to do it. We did two versions of it, one with me playing acoustic guitar, one with me playing bass and singing, you know, both. So I'd do the vocal and play the bass or play or play the acoustic. And he came round about a week, week later and said, look, I've got this sort of little plan, you know, for, for home record. What do you think of this? And he played the mix. Just organ like that? Yeah. And, yeah. and it goes from there being bass on it to just being acoustic guitar on it, you know. Oh, I don't think I even noticed that. Yeah. Yeah. The bass drops in and out all the time and... Uh, uh, he said, well, of course, we'll, we'll fix the bass, you know. And I said, man, no, are you kidding? You know, it, it sounds fantastic. It sounds really, really cool. And so those th- those things would, would come along, those happy accidents. It's amazing. Yeah, it's such a great way to start the record. Again, so many what I think of as like really bold choices that are still so subtle. To leave just vocal and organ for that long to start the record and, and wait that long before finally some drums happen to where you can kind of even like get your footing on that song is, is, uh, it's amazing. It's nice of you to say so. It makes me want to go and listen to it now. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> listened to it for about 10 years. I don't know. Can I ask you more about uh, some of the writing stuff like Indian Queens? Yeah. I'm going back to Indian Queens cause it's been so long and I've gone wrong. Every place I've been, I left it all. How do you end up writing a song like that? I used to have a, a little pad, <laughs> I suppose, a, a little house in um, in Cornwall. Down there in a town called Foy, which is a fishing, sort of fishing village. Uh, on the, I used to rent it out, actually, mainly, because there's a big regatta. The town would get really full of tourists. I used to go in the off-season down to this place. And it was quite boozy. You know, I used to have a few friends down there, and we'd hang out in the pubs and you know, just have a good time, really. One time I was coming back and it was started to drive back to London. I had a bit of a hangover, just a slight hangover. And uh, I was driving back and I came to this sign for a, a town, which I'd driven past many times called Indian Queens. I'd driven past it a few times and I always thought, God, such a great name. Why on earth? It's, it, it doesn't sound like it's a Cornish name at all. It sounds like it's in, it's in a place in, I don't know, Idaho or somewhere like that. I was about to say, it doesn't sound British. Yeah, it doesn't sound British at all. <laughs> and I'd very often thought about, I'd like to write a song, you know, with this title. It's such a great title. But anyway, on this day, for some reason, I turned off the road. And I thought, I'm going to go and have a look at Indian Queens. It sounds so romantic and fantastic. So Uh-oh. I went, drove down there and it was a real 
It's a real dump. I mean, let's not yeah. beat around the bush. You know, it's a yeah. really grim little, you know, tired place. And um, but it got me thinking, and I started thinking about. God, it's just the sort of place, you know, when I was a teenager, when my dad came out of the Air Force and I was waiting for life to begin, you know, that feeling of, wait, of being absolutely sure that life was going on without me, you know, and I said, how much longer, oh Lord, you know, before I'm out of it. It was a perfectly nice place where we used to live, you know, but after seeing this Indian Queens, I thought, it seems like all the young people have just gone, you know, from this place. Or there can't be any jobs or something. Why does it look so bleak, you know? And so I started thinking of this little folk song about this guy, you know, a silly story, really. But it gave me a chance to say some nice words like uh, Santa Marta. And, uh, so you just kind of uh, went with what sounded nice? Or did you actually like look at a map and plot out this guy's course and figure out? I got a map out. Ah, amazing. I used to go out with Margot Kidder, who's uh, an actress who uh, Uh was in Superman. She was in the Superman movies. She was Canadian, and uh, she came from Yellowknife. Oh, no kidding. Or Yellow Snow, as she used to call it. (laughs) And I always thought, well, it's a great... It's a great name, you know. There's no, there's no yellow knives in the UK, you know. <laughs> yeah, and no. uh, and I thought, well, this is a great chance for me to just stick this in for Margaret. I wasn't going out with her anymore, you know. But I thought, well, she'd get a kick out of me sticking yellow knife in this uh, in this song, you know. Wait, had you have you ever been to a yellow knife? No, said? I haven't. <laughs> well, judging by what she told me about yellow knife, it sounded like a Canadian Indian queen. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like he's going from bleak place to bleak place. Obviously, yeah. is Santa Marta? What are you talking about? In I looked about this last night because I got so curious about it. So in like South America, Colombia or the island is, do y'all call it that? Yeah, it is. It is. I, I got a bit of luck there. So it's something about Panama. I wanted to say Panama. Yeah. It sang so well. And then I got a map out. Luckily there was a place called Santa Marta, which again rolled off the tongue, you know. Amazing. So you got this guy going from the UK, Indian Queens leaving. Yeah. Somehow I imagine Indian Queens was somewhere in the like northeastern United States. So I was trying to follow, oh, yeah. follow his path. It <laughs> never occurred to me that people would think, of course, of course, yeah. So I pretty much finished this song by the time I got back to London. I needed I needed a few place names. Oh, you had so you the melody just driving. You had a, a driving melody. Yeah, yeah. And I got the guitar out when I got back and found, oh, this works pretty well, yeah. And the recording has got a really fantastic little atmosphere, things coming in and out, sort of dreamlike. But I found out why the place is called Indian Queens. It's named, dig this, after Pocahontas. And after Pocahontas saved John Smith's life, she didn't marry John Smith. She married one of John Smith's officers. And came to England. They landed in um, Falmouth, which in those days was a major, major port. It's about as near to America as you can get without okay. losing, leaving the British Isles, you know. And they landed at Falmouth and they made their way um, to London. They stopped at this um, this place, which had a... a an inn, you know, and uh, put up for the night. And anyway, this, of course, she caused quite a stir, you know, with the locals when they turned up. And uh, she was such a knockout. Apparently she was so nice and just charmed everybody and they all that they immediately changed the name of the town to Holy indian shit. queen <laughs> indian queen it was called unbelievable 
And then it got even weirder because it turns out she's actually buried in London, in Greenwich. It's really, really bizarre. And there are pubs around this area called the Indian Queen, the Queen, the Indian, and they're all named after her. But I've discovered all this after this Blumen's song came out. People wrote to me and told me all this. Well, it's a great song. <laughs> Thank you. Well, yeah, it's nice to it's nice to talk about it. I've got this little run of solo shows I'm doing in in London starting next week, and uh, and that's why I was pleased to run across Summer Mess again. You know, oh, awesome. um, I, I'd stopped doing Slide. What songs do you do off this record? Then I never really sort of think of it like that. You know, oh, as, right. as oh, I should do a few off this and I should do a few off that. But I I'd, I'd certainly been doing. Lately, I let let things slide, and God, I can't remember. Has she got a friend? Is thing? Isn't that? Oh one? yeah, sure. Yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've been doing that one, but with the solo shows, you get into sort of little grooves of things. You'll do something one night, and you think, "Oh, that's good. I'll keep that in," and then suddenly it gets kind of corny. You know, after a while, you can't stop doing it. You know, so so the, the only thing to do is really is to just quit quit playing yeah. it. You know, <laughs> and, and see if you can fall in love with it again. Are these your first shows since being shut down all this time? I've done a couple of festivals, but they also solo, actually, although one of them I was supposed to do with the straight jackets, um, but uh-huh. they, they couldn't get visas, you know, to come oh, in. Right, right. So I took it as a good a, a good opportunity to um, try out these, these you know, revisitings and songs that people aren't, aren't um, familiar with over here that I've written more recently. I'm pulling a few things out of the bag that I haven't done for quite a long time, but obviously there's some tunes that I have to do. You know, people, people just need to hear them. Do you have like a, a standard closer that you just have to end with? Well, I have to do, um, I have to do Cruel to be Kind. and Oh, uh-huh. you to, uh, Finisher. That was the finisher. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I nearly always finish with um, uh, I Knew the Bride when she used oh, cool. to rock and roll because uh-huh. it's so straight ahead and everybody knows it. And when I write the book, I'll do that as well, which is from my Rock Pile, with the record I did with Rock Pile, which, which everyone seems to know. You know, they all really, uh, my audience here not some actually not so much in london they're, they're it's it's much more like an american audience there's a lot of younger people come and see me in london but elsewhere in the uk i'm sorry to say they they only really know like my old stuff i mean you were huge there right i mean in your early time bigger than in the states right in my pomp yeah <laughs> uh, yes yes until yes until so it kind of sw- shifted i mean like yeah Right, the states is more more kind of. They got worn out with me. Okay, pretty much quicker, <laughs> you know. And really, over here, if you don't keep your foot on the gas, you've kind of had your go. I see. But I've sort of stayed kind of you know chugging along under the radar. But it, it's totally my own fault because I just haven't nurtured an audience uh, over here. I've I've always gone to the other places where I'm more welcome. States or Scandinavia for some reason they I do well there, and I go to Japan. For, I don't know why what they think I'm talking about up there, but they really go for it. <laughs> so building, if we're saying there's kind of a strict division between early you and, and later you, has the later you, I guess, into, I don't know, if, you know, record sales are so different from obviously when they were probably, but like the trilogy and, and the, all these later records, are you at the same level that you were in those days or is it just a totally un, incomparable thing? That's a very good question. I think I'm perceived differently now. 
which I'm rather sort of pleased about, you know, yeah. it's a kind of a, a, you know, some elder statesman. I suppose it's, it's better to be perceived as that as somebody who's a bit kind of over the hill. It's a very fine line between elder statesman and over the hill. There we go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think because I've kept writing songs and I've played with lots of other people. Also, I have to mention uh, Wilco as well. I owe them right. a tremendous debt of gratitude, you know, because they, uh, they took me on tour with them at one point. And when was that? It seems fairly recent to me, but it was probably about 10 years ago or okay, something right. like that. But they took me on tour with them to the Midwest. And that has always been a part of the United States that um, have remained resolutely immune to me. And, um, <laughs> and uh, they'd done one of my tunes. They'd done a song called I Love My Label from, okay. from way, way back because they'd launched their own label. Uh-huh. So they um, they they did a, a cover of, of this song that I wrote called I Love My Label, which I wrote about stiff records. And they took me on tour. So I used to get up and play I Love My Label with them. And they also did a fantastic version of Cruel To Be Kind as well. Oh, cool. I don't know that. And which I, I would sing with them. But apart from that, I just, uh, I, I'd do half an hour before they, uh, they came on. And it was remarkably well received. And now... You know, Indianapolis, bring it on. You can go there, no right. I can That's go amazing. to Indianapolis. And, so uh, a direct result, I mean, you feel a direct, direct result from that. Direct yeah. result as, as, uh, of Wilco's very welcome attentions. That's amazing. It was really good fun. They're, they're terrific boys and um, no, it was great. So, yeah, it's a good question that about, I, I'm, I was sort of more on the TV back then, you know, mm-hmm. back in those days and on the, covers of the magazines and that sort of thing because mm-hmm. i was you know younger and prettier um, in the in those days you know, mm-hmm. which helped and uh, and i was in a band you know rock pile where i had a reputation as a quite a party band you know so mm-hmm. um and that was all the rage back then well i hope uh are you going to be able to make it over here are you wait are you making new tunes right now or not really no not I've, really? I've written a few things but but I, I found this lockdown time extremely uninspiring. You know, oh, I really, tell me about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Awful. I really need to go out and see some people. You know, that's how they say get your ideas and see how people react to, to things. So I, I, I need to, to get out there. I, I love playing live. But I'm a lucky fellow. You know, I'm a really lucky fellow. I get to talk to nice people like you and you ask me... Uh, about these uh, these old records, and it is it's great fun to uh, to talk to talk about Matthew. So thanks very much. Well, listen, thank you, the fellow who showed me this record. I, I asked him if he wanted to ask anything, and one of the things that uh, I feel like might be a fitting ending. He wonders if if you know or if it feels to you the way he feels about it. And uh, this is, I guess, why I'm asking about where this thing lands in terms of like success. I, I didn't hear this record until I mean it had been out for probably eight or nine years at that point, you know. But it did reach me, you know. And uh, he feels that it's like this record that gets kind of passed around as like a secret. It didn't come with like a press blitz or something like that, obviously, you know, anytime you ever show it to anybody and go, have you ever heard this? And you just, well, just dig this, you know, put it on. And it's without fail. Everyone is just floored. You made something really special, really uh, amazing. Well, that's, that's very, that's very kind of you to uh, say so. And, um, I, I, I should get it out and have another listen to it. <laughs> yeah, enjoy it. It's a good one. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. Fant- fantastic, Matthew. Well, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. It's great talking to you too. I hope we uh, we can meet in, um, you know, face-to-face 
properly at some point. I hope so. Yeah, either over there or over here. If you come around, I'll uh, I'll, I'll find you. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks for listening to the Talkhouse podcast, and thanks to Nick Lowe and Matthew Houck for chatting. If you like what you heard, please follow Talkhouse on your favorite podcasting services and social media outlets. This week's episode was produced by Melissa Kaplan, and the Talkhouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.